I'm the chair of the School Studies Program at the New School for. Yeah. It was Elaine, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, oh, you, you. Okay. Is, is this better now? Hello. Can I can I get yours? Mine is working. Can you hear me now, Elaine? Okay, so welcome again. I'm Os Frankel, the Chair of Historical Studies. Uh, and we are launching uh, today a very exciting series under the title of Critical History Today. Uh, we are present at the birth of a new lecture series. Uh, how exciting that can be. <laughs> um, let me say something before I introduce our distinguished guests and they don't need an introduction, but I will introduce them. Before I do that, I want to say something about the history program at the New School and its affinity with critical history. So this program was born in circa 1985 <coughs> as a Chicago University style interdisciplinary committee. Therefore, you know, we are schizoids. So on, on the undergraduate side, we are history department. On the graduate side, we are committee on historical studies. Um, and, and the committee was composed of all representation from all departments and disciplines at the new School for Social Research, back then it was called the Graduate Faculty, but in effect it was some kind of an alliance uh, between uh, historical sociology and social history. In the, in the person of Charles Tilling. In the person of Charles Tilling, his wife, Louise Tilling. <coughs> um, so on the historical sociology we had uh, Chuck Tilling, and Ira Katzenelson to some degree, and our late colleague uh, Ari Zolberg. On the history side, uh, Louise Tilly, but also a group of very distinguished Marxist social historians from Britain. So Christopher Hill came and left, and Perry Anderson came and left, and Eric Hobsbawm came and stayed for about 15 years. Right. Um, so this was incredibly productive. There was a pro-seminar session, and it became a research hub for both faculty and the PhD students and so on and so forth. And the whole thing came apart by the end of the 1990s. <coughs> um, and the committee had to be reconst reconstituted by the beginning of our century. And most of our members, most of our colleagues are sort of closer to mainstream um, uh, historiography, but we still retain 
our commitment to an affinity with uh, the conversation between history and theory. Uh, we also consider it part of our intellectual DNA. And, and since theory also changed its face in the new school, that is, I think, by the 1990s, uh, it gravitated towards critical theory, and suddenly in sociology and politics, and after the 10th of century in anthropology as well. Um, so we see ourselves as in constant conversation with the social sciences and the humanities. This is not just an empty declaration, that's the way we hire people, tenure people. And we also urge our students to uh, engage in kind of self-reflexivity that comes, as, as I think, as, as, as a consequence of this, of, of grappling with critical theory, self-reflexivity that comes with archives and evidence and other aspects of historical practice. Uh, and we decided last spring uh, that instead of engaging in this kind of eclectic, um, you know, a lecture series practice that is very much part of academia to focus on our heritage and intellectual heritage and dedicate our lecture series to critical history. We see, we see in critical history the theme of our lecture series for the next uh, few years at least, and we hope that this will become a hub for conversation about critical history, not just for the newspaper <laughs> of research, but also for practicing historians and non-historians in the New York city area. That's, that's our connection with this subject matter. And then by June, we discovered you, <laughs> a cabal of rebels, <laughs> um, the hashtag uh, theory revolt. And we thought that it would be a great way to launch this speaker series with a panel discussion with the author of this document. So I don't know how many of you uh, had a chance of reading this document. This is on his on theory and history uh, that is published under the hashtag uh, theory revolt and today I also learned that you are part of the wild on collective we are we the are the wild you <laughs> 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 are there are two and a half of you there are three how can we join the wild on you can you can you can join the Wild On Network, Network. I see. by going on to the website called TheoryRevolt.com, and there's a mailing list there, and I encourage every, we encourage everyone to get on that mailing list, Okay. and this is the beginning of some public events that will lead in the course of this year, hopefully, to thinking about the collective and the bigger project and right. folding more and more people into the project, but for the moment, get on the mailing list and join the network. So it's not like the Freemasons, no, no, no initiation lines, <laughs> shedding no. of blood. Not even anybody. <laughs> <Well>. <laughs> okay, let me, if, if you haven't had a chance, let me just summarize this piece and we'll hear more from our guests in a second. The thesis on theory in history makes two arguments. First, historical profession has not changed much since the 18th century. It's ideological attachment to, I'm quoting, naive empiricism fetishization of the archive, ontological realism, and, and impotent storytelling. That's, that's a quotation. Um, second, the profession, the, I think there's another hidden argument here, is that the profession as a whole lack self-reflexivity, <coughs> concerning the most of the <coughs> mental aspects of its, of its approach and its practice, evidence, time, truth, and context. Um, so the piece, in a very strong language, challenges the historical profession for its guild mentality, takes aim at the way that 
the profession trains PhD students. Um, and also takes aim at its main publishing venues, especially the American Historical Review, and I heard that the editor of that illustrious publication is on fire. <laughs> You'll be responsible for that. Um, so what do they advocate? And we'll hear more from them in a second. They advocate collapsing the boundaries between theory and history. Engaging uh, critical history, history that is theorized, history that converses with either uh, semiotic psychoanalysis, Marxist uh, critical theory, hermeneutics, and, and, and the list is long. And, and, and history that moves away from strict empiricism and using context as the only venue for historical reasoning. I think it's a very strongly worded document. It's, uh, many, there are many rhetorical flares. It begins with a poem that addresses clear um, the muse of history. Um, and there are winks here, I believe, for to many historical events and contemporary events from Martin Luther's 95 thesis. In the last year, we celebrate 500 years mm -hmm. to that moment, uh, to the Me Too moment, the contemporary, our <coughs> contemporary predicament. Um, it's, a, it's a kind of lamentation. Theory is described here as marginalized, ghettoized, I don't know how to pronounce this word, feminized, abused, suffering. And historians are described as locked in a prison. There's lots of rage and, and cold call for revolt in this document. Perhaps you'll have a chance to talk about the poetical side of your intervention. Um, but before we do that, let me uh, present our guest today. Unfortunately, Ethan Kleinberg could not uh, make it tonight, and we have John <coughs> Professor watching. He may be watching. Hi, Ethan. Um, John Scott is a pioneering uh, historian who, whose, whose work and intellectual output combined or co has combined history, philosophy, and feminist theory. It challenged the foundations of conventional historical practice and introduced new types of evidence and thought to historical work. She sometimes calls a uh, work or refers to a work under the rubric of history of difference, uh, critical history for sure, and the history of the present. Um, she's a professor emerita in the School of Social Science. Uh, at the Institute of Adva for Advanced Study in Princeton, currently a visitor or an adjunct professor of history at the Graduate Center at CUNY. Uh, her books include, I won't read all of the titles, uh, Gender and the Politics of History, 1988, um, Only Paradoxes to Offer French Feminists and the Right of Men, 1996, The Politics of the Whale, they, I'm sorry, 2007, and the most recent book is Knowledge, Power, and Academic uh, Freedom, 2018. Yeah, and it's about sex and secularism. I see. So we have, that was... Okay, sex, sex and secularism written here is 2007, so... Uh, no, it's 2018. Okay. Um, Gary Wilder is a professor in the PhD program at the Graduate Center at CUNY. Um, he teaches in the anthropology and history uh, departments. He's also the director of the Committee on Globalization and Social Change at the Graduate Center. He's the author of Freedom Time, Negritude, the Decolonization of the Future of the World, <coughs> uh, 2015. And the friend, friend, 
That's the internet. Blame the internet. Um, and the French imperial nation state, negritude, and colonial humanism between the world wars. And he's a co-editor of two books. One of them is, a, is, is out, and the other is about to come out. So one of them is the post-colonial contemporary, political imaginaries for the global present. The other is the Fernando Coronel reader. Um, is that right? Okay, and Professor Wilder is currently uh, completing a book on, of essays on temporality and solidarity entitled Untimely History, Unhomely Times, and working on another book project about black radical humanism in the Atlantic world. And I'll say a few words about our missing colleague Ethan Kleinberg. So, Professor of History at Western University, editor in chief of History and Theory. It's a major publication, and he's the author of uh, Haunting History for a deconstructive approach to the past generation, existential, and another book, Generation Existential, Martin de Heidegger, Philosophy in France, 1927-1961. Uh, um, he's also the co-auditor of the volume Presence, Philosophy, History, and Cultural Theory for the 21st Century. Um, please join me in welcoming our two distinguished guests to the new I apologize for the lengthy introduction, and I ask the two guests to spend eight to ten minutes, you can talk for longer, uh, describing the uh, initiative. Uh, it's time, also time in terms of the historical profession, but also time in the larger world, you know, um, the Trump moment. And, and uh, so we all think that we need more energy, uh, and that's the time to bring energy into our profession and to think about big questions. And, but the question is, whether why in this direction? What do you think is missing in the historical profession, and how would you correct it? So, please. So I thought I would start. Can you hear me? <laughs> is that okay? <coughs> And, and tell you how this came about, um, and just a little bit about the responses that we've gotten to it, and then Garrett's going to talk more about the actual substance of the, of the, of the critique. Um, the three of us, uh, first of all, are historians, but with very different, we come from very different places. Um, Gary is as much in anthropology as in history. I'm in a school of social science at an institute where there is a school of historical studies but where I have never been welcome. Um, when I first came there, the, the anxiety was that people would think I was in their school. Um, that was in 1985. It's the first incarnation of these theoretical um, issues about theory and, and debate. And Ethan is um, more, I would say, philosophically inclined than the, than the two of us, does intellectual history, is the editor of history and theory, is in a history department, but also in the humanities program at, at Wesleyan. <coughs> so we each think of ourselves as not being central to the conventional or traditional, or whatever you want to call it, way of, of doing history. The three of us sort of were complaining to each other um, a lot. <laughs> and, um, and I'm just going to read you a little bit of something we wrote and then talk more. What drew us together was our impatience with the persistent refusal of disciplinary history to engage with long-standing critiques of its practice, 
critiques of its realist epistemology and empiricist methodology, its archival fetishism, <coughs> its insistence on the primacy of chronological narrative, and its maintenance of reified boundaries between present and past. How had it happened, we wondered, that the critiques which had nourished our own thinking had somehow failed to transform disciplinary norms in significant ways? <coughs> and over and over again, <coughs> this has come up. Um, didn't you do this already in the 1980s? Haven't you fought that battle? Uh, Scott McLennie in the, in the Chronicle sort of rolled his eyes and called it deja vu all over again. Um, the, our answer to that is, yes, we did fight that battle, but um, somehow we failed to transform the disciplinary norms in significant ways. What we're witnessing is a reaction against um, exactly the kinds of theoretical incursions rethinking the epistemological transformations that we hope to be um, putting in place, securing. We don't believe in, in linear progressive history, but I think we hope that somehow those battles would have established a stronghold forever. I'm, I'm constantly amazed at the extent to which I think in terms of progress, um, even as I am a critic of the narratives that, um, <coughs> that, that uh, criticize or, or that tell it. So why the recurrent history <coughs> generation after generation? And the, the 80s was not the first time. I mean, we can go back. We do go back in this little thing that we wrote to the 19th century, to Nietzsche, to Schimpf, to Simmel, to Croce, um, to, to another moment in the interwar period, Heidegger, Ernst Bloch, Walter Benjamin, Du Bois, C.L.R. James. I mean, it's not as if the discipline has not had its critics time and time again. And yet that critique never seems to hold. And <coughs> what we wanted to do was figure out how we could again address the question, um, the ways in which theory had become ghettoized as a domain of intellectual history, how uh, documentary and synoptic accounts of critical thinking were, were replacing the kind of, of epistemological transformation that we had all, the three of us, undergone somewhere along the way in, in our formation and in our training. And so we, we got together, we had lunch one lunch breakfast, breakfast one day in a, in a cafe, and, and um, we sort of talked to each other, expressed these, this impatience, this um, critique, this sense that we had that we wanted to say, to intervene yet again in the question of history and how history was being produced. We ranted about the American Historical Review, we talked about training of graduate students, we talked about all the sorts of things, uh, and we told stories uh, from, from our own experience. I can point to some graduate students I've had who I thought had taken the epistemological term and are now writing conventional, perfectly wonderful, interesting history, but I read the history and I think, what happened? How did I do that? Um, and, and, and so that was the, the, the conversation. And at that meeting, we decided that what we would do would, um, and the species, the 95 species were very much on our mind. I think it was Ethan who kept saying, we're going to nail them to the door of every history department. <laughs> <laughs> that was his, his, uh, his plan. And so we left this meeting saying that we would all write something. I think we all went back, I certainly did, and I read every book of theses I could under I could find. Marx's thesis on Twitter, Walter Benjamin's thing, the Adorno and um, Horkheimer's uh, thesis. 
species after species to sort of get the sound, the tone, and the feel of what it would mean to produce, and as you say, a, 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 a harsh critique of the problem that we saw uh, before. And remarkably enough, we all set ourselves a deadline. We met the deadline. <laughs> we, I, I mean, I, I have to say, I left that meeting thinking, this is really great to start it in the moment. But I wonder what will come of it. And in fact, we produced these things. We rewrote them. We wrote on each other's stuff. We edited. We fiddled around. Um, we, we ultimately, with many um, successive versions, came up <coughs> with what you see as the species um, uh, in history. It was certainly Ethan's notion that we would have open source access <coughs> and that there would be no, uh, anybody could have access to it that they wanted. And the result of that <coughs> was a very quick take-up of what we've done. Translation into Portuguese, into uh, Spanish, into French, into German. I mean, it happened like that. Um, Polish. Polish is the latest one. Arabic is coming. Arabic is coming. I mean, so there was clearly, we hit a nerve that people in many parts of the world responded to whatever uh, it was that we had actually done with this. We got all sorts of um, emails from people saying, thank God, you know, finally you've said something that resonates with what I've been doing, <coughs> what I've seen happening around me, what's not happening around me, and so on and so forth. And then we had the idea, <coughs> and this is the last thing I'll say, of <coughs> actually recruiting comments from a number of different people on the thesis, not just the individual emails, and we would we thought we would use the history of the present in the journal that I'm one of the editors of, that we would use the website of the history of the present to post those interventions. And we got five amazing interventions, which you, if you go it's historyofthepresent.com. Maybe some of you have seen them. The theses are posted there and these five um, critical engagement, and that was what was so exciting about getting the, um, these, these engagements as well. They're not, this is the most wonderful thing I've read, thank you so much. They're serious, thoughtful um, engagements provoked by, I think, what we've done, and pro provocation was what we had in mind. So there's one from Andrew Zimmerman, which, who, who um, <coughs> likes what we have, but reminds us of the need to decolonize theory. What about, stop talking about um, post-structuralism, uh, psychoanalysis, et cetera, et cetera. What about um, the fact that uh, not just Fanon, but Africa has an influence on um, the theorists you're talking about? Uh, what about the fact that Foucault learned about prisons from the Black Panthers, although he never fully acknowledged that, uh, that debt? and so on and so forth. The first part of Andrew's intervention is a reminder that um, theory is bigger than the suggestions we make about what theory could be, and about the need to critically engage with the theories themselves. So it's not just history, theory coming to history, history coming to theory, but what it is that the history represents and can, was meant to do and can do for us. The second part of his, of his, of his it's about the poetics of writing history. And that was my favorite part, actually, because he talks about um, how thinking that one of the things that our piece made you think about was the practice of writing itself and the poetics of writing. 
the kinds of choices one makes as one writes. Uh, that writing itself needs to be thought differently from the ways in which we <coughs> The second one was from Indrani Chatterjee, who talks about the need to decolonize history and what that decolonization would mean. And again, it's not your usual decolonization, it's a sustained discussion of how one might practice the decolonizing of, of history. There's a piece by Amiya al-Shakri, which is a Lacanian reading of the historian's ethical relationship to death. I cannot repeat it for you, hmm. uh, but it's, oh, I can't even summarize it. It's a five summary, yeah, but it's a really beautiful piece. Um, it reminded me a little bit of some of the stuff that Michel de Sarteau writes about historians engaging with death, uh, both uh, uh, visiting the dead and getting pleasure out of death, and also denying death by bringing the dead back to life. But it's a really interesting um, of engagement <coughs> by Omnia. John Modern, um, who does religious studies and American history, muses about digital history, what it means to look at archives on screen rather than in the archives, and, and what the demystifying of digital history has <coughs> to involve. And the final one is from Matt Crow, who um, reminds us that the um, separation we make between workmanlike history, which we refer to negatively, and the work of producing history is one of those um, dichotomies that he wants to refuse. He's doing a materialist Marxist reading of what it would mean to do knowledge production. And the work of knowledge production, he says, matters a great deal. So instead of workmanlike, he says, <coughs> we should talk about bureaucratic pressures on the writing industry, but not dismiss workmanlike history as something to be scorned or, uh, <coughs> or rejected. And he focuses particularly on, the, on our critique of the use of context um, in uh, the writing of history, our saying that context has to be problematized as well. He says yes and no. Um, there are contexts like the environment um, that are given context, however we want to read them and interpret them, that have to also be taken into account in, in thinking critically uh, about history. So we get we get a Marxist uh, engagement, a Lacanian one, um, a, a, a post-colonial one. Um, again, German is post-colonial, but also one thinking about poetics and and digital history. We touched the, the thing that was amazing about each of these <coughs> five was they come from very different places, and yet were provoked to think the way they are thinking by the appearance of the pieces. So I'll stop there. Turn it over to Gary. <laughs> okay, I'll take this one. Um, yeah, that that that, <laughs> that breakfast meeting you decided to break windows. You remember? Yes. That was like, <laughs> like how how are we gonna name stuff? Are we gonna are we really gonna say stuff? Let's break some windows. That that was that was the uh, the takeaway from that breakfast. And that's why we did wild. <laughs> wild had to be in the title. That's what we were doing. Um. So actually, I'll, I'll, I'll explain why Wild is in the title. Yeah. <laughs> yes? No? Is that okay? Yeah, sure. Of course it's okay. Uh, so, I mean, the breakfast was, Ethan and I had actually met once before um, and at the Wild Sun Cafe downtown, and we decided to kind of uh, 
what would it mean to, to, to do more. We talked to Joan, Joan came, and uh, so because that meeting was at the Wild Sun Cafe, it seemed like very, uh, you know, it seemed like a sign, it seemed telling, but also obviously there are gender politics to um, naming our group the Wild Sun Cafe, so we changed the names to the Wild Own Cafe, which is both the Wild On Cafe right. and the Wild Own Cafe, which um, is in French, is the neutral uh, as well as, yeah, also the, the, the being the Greek. That's right. We didn't think about that. I realized that after the fact. Um, okay, so I'll, I'll pick up, I'm going to say something about the genesis, a, a little bit about the genesis also to complement what you <coughs> said, and then something about the object of the critique and the aim of the critique. You know, it, it, in part, um, and we can talk more as a group about, you know, how new this is, or why we might need this now, or whether the challenges facing discipline, you know, the kind of constraints on disciplinary history are the same as they uh, uh, were a generation ago. But uh, in a certain way, all three of us, and we've all written about this in different places, were especially <coughs> struck by the fact that uh, what we, and I can say we, I should start by saying thank you, Odd. This is like <coughs> a terrific opportunity to have exactly the kind of conversation we hoped. And I really think that New School of Critical History is the only place where, you know, it, it's the absolute right place for this to be the first public conversation about this. I mean, no, no, I, I, it's, it, it's on there. I, I, I need it. I mean, that won't get you any, that won't get you good publicity, but I think this is a, a special kind of uh, place for, for all the reasons we're talking about here. So what we, I'll say what we are up against uh, we, we, we realized over and over, and Joan has written about this, I've written about this, and Ethan has written about this, is not a kind of uh, explicitly uh, conservative, positivist rejection of theory as such, although we know that certainly exists out there. We're actually especially <coughs> concerned with the more insidious ways in which uh, we see all around us this superficial but shallow and domesticated embrace of theory. So in so many ways, what we're up against is not people saying that's nonsense, we know how to deal with that, but people saying, we already do that, or I do that, or you know, we've done, we, we read your book 20 years ago, 30 years ago, and that's on the syllabus, here's the syllabus, what are you talking about? And it's in my footnotes. It's in, it's in the footnotes, exactly. So we might call that the, the domestication of theory by history. And the other thing that I was particularly kind of alert to and I think we've all, all written about this too, is that you know, the, paired with the domestication of, uh, of theory by history is the, the ghettoization of, the, uh, of theory in intellectual history. Theory is supposed to dwell there, it's allowed to dwell in, in intellectual history, and yet uh, <coughs> we were struck, or I'll, I'll speak for myself, I've been struck over and over again by the surprising number of historians that might write about currents in critical theory uh, in such conventional ways. That in certain ways, so many <coughs> historians write about uh, epistemologies that never serve as the starting point or analytic framework of their own work. Now, I'm not saying <coughs> that all work has to work that way, but it is striking how little work works that way. And it's something I think all three of us try to do in our own uh, in our own work. Um, so this, you know, in a certain way, uh, uh, was the starting point of this critique of, really, as we keep saying, realist epistemology and empiricist 
methodology. Uh, one thing to underline, a lot of people immediately come up with counter arguments as if we haven't read the stuff that we supposedly all already know uh, that you know we are talking about tendency, structural tendencies in the field, the discourse of disciplinary history, the structure of disciplinary history, the professional field of disciplinary history, the kind of trip, the system of training and publishing and hiring and prizes, <coughs> the reward structure that 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 so it's not that no one does the work we're do we're calling for or trying to do. Many, many people are doing it, but those many individuals, the we again, are up against this kind of set of structural constraints within the field, which is very difficult to write about. I mean, I tried to write about this in the AHR, and they want names. And then when you give names, they say, but how can you say that? That's such a nice person, or they've done such important work, or that can't be true. I mean, you go around this whole merry-go-round of nominal, like, like uh, it, it is very difficult to, uh, to say these things uh, other than at breakfast or in the bar or the conference or after every talk you go to. So we wanted to like, okay, we can take the risk. It doesn't matter. Let's, let's I mean, <coughs> we've been saying these things in print for a long, long time, which inspired Ethan and I uh, when uh, uh, both of us. Um, but, okay, so that's one point. The object of critique is this kind of tendencies in the field. The aim of the critique is not a call for historians to write about theorists or somehow apply theory to their work. I mean, the section on critical <coughs> history, I think, for my part, is the most important. It really is not a call to do theory, whatever on earth that might mean, but to practice, as Oz said, critical history, self-reflexive critical <coughs> history. For me, this means conceptualizing our material treating and treating as real those processes, relations, structures that might might not be immediately <coughs> or objectively verifiable. It means asking questions whose answers can <coughs> never be definitively found in an archival box. It's not a call to not do archival history, but it's calling out this idea that any question worth answering is one that can be answered by a document in a box somewhere. That uh, we know is not uh, <coughs> the case. And we may say, well, who does that? But, you know, uh, I think we're still up against this. Uh, as we say in here, this means being self-reflexive about the histories, limitations, and risks about one's own categories and frameworks. It means taking responsibility for one's own implication in the object of study, psychic, social, political, <coughs> ethic, ethical. Uh, it means, for me, the need to address ways in which the past is implicated in the present and vice versa. Uh, and critical history, of course, as we say over and over, means being clear about the political stakes of the work. It means uh, uh, addressing the relevance for our political present. It doesn't necessarily mean that every uh, at work of history or scholarship has to be uh, uh, instrumental in some immediate ways, but it means that, that if that question isn't kind of at the central or being asked, then we're in scholasticism, we're in antiquarianism, and we're not speaking to, uh, to the world. So to me, that's, that's critical history. So again, uh, as Joan said, said differently, it's a critique of disciplinary essentialism and methodological fetishism. For one way to think about that is that it's simple, it's a call <coughs> for the need to judge work on the quality of the questions, the persuasiveness of the argument, 
and the significance of the work for social understanding in some general way, rather than on the virtuoso performance of archival methodology, right? There's a tail wagging the dog here. It doesn't mean that everyone does that, but it means that if you do do that, you get a pass. It's extraordinary. What extraordinary history? Uh, I don't know what that means. Often, you know, when it's when it's simply based on that. Again, which is not to say that the extraordinary use of empirical research may not make magic. It may make magic, but itself doesn't necessarily make magic. Uh, so part of what we're suggesting, well, I, I'm always reminded of the amazing Le Capra line, where he says that, which I repeat all the time, but I love it. Conventional history somewhere, he says, I'm paraphrasing, is the translation of archives into narrative. Right? <laughs> the translation of archives into narrative. There are Le Capra students here, so yeah. uh, you guys know uh, <laughs> the reference. The right yeah. <laughs> the reference. That, 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 you know, I, I, I live by that and repeat that as a negative objectivism. So in, in a certain way, uh, we are not, again, when we say we're not just calling on people to like think about epistemology or to do theory, it's part of what we're suggesting is that there is a deep relation between empiricist methodology and conventional assumptions, ideological assumptions, liberal assumptions, <coughs> common sense <coughs> assumptions about event and agency and intentionality and causality and context. Uh, that you know, th th an, an empiricist conception of reality suggests that if it's observable and verifiable, <coughs> it's really real. And a realist conception of truth suggests that if the work approximates the world, it is true. And as I suggested before, this tends to disregard those very real but often non-apparent social, symbolic, psychic structures and processes uh, that may, in fact, be the locus of what I would call historical truth. One of the nice things about this is we don't agree about everything, and I don't know if Joan or Ethan would ever uh, say, use the word <coughs> historical truth, but that's part of the fun of what we have been doing. Um, okay, I'm gonna skip, we can talk more about this. Empiricism as ideological is the, is, is, is the, bottom, is the bottom line. Um, I've said this a couple times, but I'll just again put on the table the critique of empiricism as a kind of, as a lens for apprehending the world is certainly not uh, a suggestion that historians should abandon empirical work, which has been taken, you know, a lot of the response has been, but, but we need empirical work or we can't just do theory. Not one of us has ever done that in our own work or called for that, and it's certainly not in the thesis. On the contrary, the whole idea is that critical history is worldly. It works through concrete situations. It grapples with actual problems. It recognizes concepts as socially embedded and historically produced. The whole point is to challenge the reified distinction between history and theory. Theory is not some kind of abstract model that you either apply to your work <coughs> to explain it, or that if your work is really good, it will lead to that abstract model that can just be uh, uh, transported to uh, explain any other kind of situation. Um, so this is as much, I think, a critique of ungrounded abstraction as it is of untheorized description. <coughs> um, I'm right at the end here, thank you. Uh, <laughs> sorry, sorry. Okay. Now, we haven't even talked about this, but there's there's another. So, in a certain way, I've been suggesting. Look, we all need to do. You know, if you do history, it's got to be 
theorize critical history in this way. If you're a critical theorist, you have to be doing history because otherwise uh, you're also reproducing an ideological conception of the world. If you're not relating uh, uh, your concepts to uh, social arrangements and social formations. <coughs> so that, that, that's the vision here. And in a certain way, this is a call uh, to suggest, A, all history, as Oz was saying, needs to be self-reflexive in this way. And B, obviously, you can never have done with this. You can't be done with this. This is not a project <coughs> that you could learn about and then just apply to your work because we're always triangulating our research to our own categories, to our world, to our present. So this is a practice that has to be built into what it means to do history. So this whole idea that, well, we did this and we know it and <coughs> we have a methodology course and everyone has to read a chapter of Hayden Weiss and a little bit of Foucault and you know, go, let's get back to doing history. Uh, I mean, we went through this in anthropology, right? Like, we're done with this. Can't be done with this. But that's on one level. Mm -hmm. You can talk about, the, like, there is a sense here that we all need to be doing something <coughs> or something more like we're calling for. That's the, 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 the poetic pleasure of a manifesto. But there's also, I think, a different, more modest, uh, way to understand this call. And it's less, I mean, in a certain way, obviously, really good, even even, even the most flat-footed empirical history can be enormously valuable in all kinds of ways and contexts, and, uh, and it will never not be done. So, you know, I'm torn between, you know, the first part of this, which is like, enough already, and, okay, that's going to be there, but the more modest intervention for me is something like, uh, not that every historian should be uh, this kind of critical theorist, but at the very least, the field has to stop pronouncing on what is and is not history. So part of my concern in all of this, in my work <coughs> over and over, uh, is, it, it, is this need to break the professional fantasy that academic historians, professional historians, uh, the clerks, somehow have a monopoly on how to think about the past, or how to think historically, or how to do history. So many of my students who are not in history and want to do historical work, the first thing they say is, so I'm going to go to the history department and ask them how to do it and ask them if they approve. And I'm like, you are free <coughs> to do this otherwise, and precisely all of these other kinds, go learn the historiography, learn how to do archival history, but uh, critical history isn't you know, history plus, right? Uh, we know that. So uh, I suggested this, that this didn't make it into the final thesis, but one of one of my lines is that just as uh, we should never uh, concede politics to the politicians or ethics to the ethicists or even philosophy to professional <coughs> philosophers, like there's absolutely no reason that professional historians should uh, own history in any any kind of way. And one of the things uh, we didn't write about it here was. Uh, it is remarkable that in the last 10, 15, 20, <coughs> 25 years, so much of the, so much really exciting, uh, innovative, uh, uh, generative ways of thinking historically have been produced by people who are not professional historians. They've also been produced by professional historians, so it's not, you know, historians can't do that, but. Uh, but you know, if you if you trace the book reviews in the history journals of those uh, really generative works about history, it, it's very interesting. And the and the last thing I'll say, and I'm done, is uh, that 
as Joan said about uh, Ethan uh, and the um, thinking about the form of this, we were very interested in the relationship between form and content. Uh, <coughs> we didn't want this to be, uh, you know, some kind of uh, careerist, self-promoting. Like, in other words, we had two. Jer Joan is the editor of History of Present. Ethan is the editor of History and Period. We could have easily published this in a journal. Uh, we immediately got emails from presses once this thing came out asking us to do this as a book. And part of this experiment at this moment, and we didn't address your question, so maybe in conversation about this moment, which we can come back to, was that we really wanted this to be a digital intervention, to be its own thing, to live on the website, to circulate through social media, and none of, well, Ethan's probably more of a digital humanities guy, certainly than I am, certainly than you are. I was going to say none of us are. He is. You are. Uh, but uh, I, that's been a really interesting experiment in terms of thinking about the relationship between form and content. So collaboration was interesting and new and challenging and fun and <coughs> frustrating and all those things, exciting and, you know, like, and so there's collaboration, but there's also this Open source. This open source that it is available for anyone. We did not commission any of these uh, translations. People stepped up to, you know, offer translations, and so there's something organic about this that we hope. And, and, and the point is not that we've covered it in the thesis. It was just to create that space for <coughs> gathering like this to to provoke conversations that will ramify. Thank you. for your presentation, but I think really extended this document and refined it in a way that uh, that I'm, I'm, I'm always want to urge you to publish this. So, so after a while, so, so after you get all these responses, actually the the, the uh, critical inquiry. Yeah, there's this on <coughs> what I was reading from is that was a blog that's on um, that we did on um, on critical inquiry blog. <coughs> so some of that is there, not <coughs> everything you said today. Oh, we wrote one follow-up. Okay. But you think publishing. Maybe. Yeah. Just to consider, because this really extended it, I think refined it much beyond those 11 pages. When you mentioned La Capra, I thought about uh, my, my In my historiography class today, we did a little bit of Hayden White. Mm -hmm. Foucault, Foucault said, in, I think in 1980, I'm not a professional historian, no, nobody's perfect. <laughs> <laughs> And so um, let's open this for discussion, commentary, <coughs> questions. Um, Joe. Sure. Um, and then first off, I'm one of the aforementioned La Capra students. Um, and I have enormous sympathy with your initiative, partly because the manifesto says the kinds of things you would say militantly and incessantly, and sort of deeply socialized in you know, your whole critical approach. So I asked like two questions in good faith. And one of them is why this zeal and sense of mission to take on like big, bad, normative history. Like why not, you know, aim for peaceful coexistence where you don't feel accountable to their norms and then you operate and play in a space outside that's critical and theoretical and interdisciplinary. Like don't I we already do that? Pardon? Don't we already do that? Yes. So then what's the impetus for wanting to rattle the cages of 
a hegemonic discourse? Like, do you think that American intellectual life is ill-served with a reductive and restrictive understanding of what history can and should be? Is there some broad social, cultural, political cost to history as it's constituted? Is it just about graduate students not getting jobs and publications, or, I, I mean, I suspect not. So where is, like, the deep sense of mm -hmm. mission coming from? And then the second question is, you know, a lot of people write history that is, you know, deeply critical in its substance and deeply progressive and maybe even deeply radical, but methodologically and stylistically somewhat conservative. Mm -hmm. And, you know, why should a person who operates with tremendous power and success in that vein feel as though they're somehow failing by, you know, reproducing a hegemonic form when there's so much social good that comes from the substance of what they say. Like, that's the point where you're going to lose a lot of people who love your fighting spirit, but who say, I don't need to reinvent myself intellectually to make a progressive, critical contribution about, you know, valid subject matter from race to mass incarceration, gender, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So those are the two questions. <coughs> Um, sure. Uh, you know, I we we wrote in a form. We wrote a manifesto. We wrote these pieces. We 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 decided to break windows, but uh, it was also kind of contingent. Uh, so, uh, you know, this certainly isn't the biggest fish I have to fry in my life, and I don't think this is. Uh, so I don't know that we all came to it with a missionary zeal, but we came to it from a kind of, uh, uh, you know, persistent frustration uh, over in so many domains. Whether it is work, good work that gets marginalized, whether it is uh, the impossibility of having a conversation about some of these issues in a place like the historical, uh, the HR. Um, um, so I think, you know, and there was a, a sense of like, look, um, let's not concede. I mean, there's nothing wrong with peaceful coexistence, but let's, you know, this move from just complaining to, and again, it's not like this isn't part of a long tradition of printing this stuff, but to kind of <coughs> say it and say it out loud in print uh, uh, seemed, uh, seemed like more of an intervention. Why does it matter? I think it matters. I mean, it's a great, it's a great question because I'm, you know, even I'm as much an anthropologist as a historian, and I would never write something like this for anthropology because who gives a shit about disciplines? Like, I don't care about anthropology, quad anthropology, history. My, uh, my closer interlocutors are in anthropology. My amazing students are anthropologists. I, you know, in a certain way, that's a conversation that is alive in exactly these ways. But I don't care about, you know an intervention that might push anthropology because it doesn't matter to me, I don't know what you think, in the way that history matters, you know. Why does history matter to you? Well, history matters because it, there's a kind of political, existential quality to history as so absolutely fundamental to social life and social relations and political imagination. It mediates so much. So part of why bother is my last point of like this professional monopoly on something that is so common, so fundamentally important, and that, that the kind of the rule of experts here really, really is quite powerful. So it's certain, you know, so it, it's as much about the public conversation. And in terms of that last point, I mean, it's a, it, it is a great 
uh, point. And again, that's why I said that thing at the end. Like I'm not actually, you know, it, it's not that everyone has to do things along these ways, but I think there are questions, real questions, about how radical a certain critique can be, how much social good comes from, I mean, there are different levels of social good, right? There's immediate stuff, and there's uh, immediate ways in which many of the people you are probably have in mind are doing more good than anything I will ever write would do. But there is a, also a real question about, uh, about uh, the relationship between a kind of uh, uh, the content of criticism and the kind of deep social theoretical assumptions about the world that may 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 go unmolested in that criticism. Mm -hmm. But I would I would just add because <coughs> I'm thinking about the progressive historians whose work I admire that in fact that work has theory embedded in it mm. that you can't read Eric Fona, um, Ira Berlin, Andrew Zimmerman, with who who in many ways write conventional Lauren Dubois, Lauren Dubois who, who who write conventional narratives. But there is theory embedded in that, the drive to um, represent or to reinterpret the history of slavery, the experience of, of, of slave, of, of uh, reconstruction, whatever, whatever, I'm reading that stuff now, that's why I'm thinking of those particular um, historians. But um, it seems to me that the best of that work has theory embedded in it. Mm -hmm. um, usually Marxist theory, but not necessarily. Um, sometimes Foucauldian, um, sometimes psychoanalytic without ever avowing its, its, um, its psychoanalytic of, of, of death. So I, I, I think that in fact um, it's a mistake to think that some of the stuff we think of as this wonderful progressive history is free of fear. It's not. Just that the opposite <coughs> is true, that so much stuff that is explicitly about theory may be, may be not progressive at all. Well, it's, it's you or know, the, the, or, or the first, the introduction <coughs> to the book says, throws around 17 theorists' names, and right. you never see any of the influence <coughs> of that thinking in what follows. You know, I read that book. Um, <laughs> and please. historian, to be an historian by anthropologist, and 
historians always say, oh, that's such an, an interesting anthropological analysis. So whichever side I'm on, I'm not on the right side. Um, but I, I think that there is just something, um, something deeply, deeply political that we know and that you're saying, but at the same time, some of it stays in place. So one of the issues that bothers me is this constant um, genuflection and critique of theory. I don't think we need the word theory anymore. I think theory is, is BS half the time. You're not even problematizing what you mean by theory. You keep saying theory, theory, theory. The attitude is that, you know, do, do we, let's demonize theory. Let's, let's, let's go from the ground up, which we're all saying. It's about conceptual labor. It's about the kind of labor you put into something. I call it conceptual labor and concept work. That's what I call it. It's another level down. It's not theory with a capital T. And we are doing a disfavor to our graduate students by constantly talking about theory and history, theory and practice. And I think it's wrong. I think that what it does is it paralyzes them. It authorizes some sort of account. I mean, I have too much to say about this because I've been thinking about it with you in some senses for, you know, uh, two decades. Um, but I'm very concerned about what our responsibility is at this point to not keep this, this, this black box of theory um, exactly um, where it is and the way um, it, it is. Right now, there's a, a Bernard Hercourt at the law school is, is doing a, a big, um, a whole year set of seminars called Critical Practices. And trying to ask, what is critique anymore? What does it look like? You know, Bruno Latour told us who said, right? Um, it's no longer what Sloterdijk says is, you know, cynical reason. What is the nature of critique itself? You, oh, each of you, and, uh, and, and I'm sorry to say that, in some ways just kept using critique. We're going to do critical history. And I think what we have to do is stop. And I think that's what you're asking for us to do. It's to stop what is critique now. We know from Foucault, critique is, is, is how not to be governed in this way by these people at this time. We know that critique is a kind of reflexive insolence towards ourselves. But what will it mean in terms of history? So I think that there's some, still some of those spaces. Theory gets still alighted. Critique gets alighted. And there's some comfort we take in saying we're going to do critical history now. And I, and I worry about that because what is really striking is when all of us, whether it be 20 years ago, and this last thing I'm going to say, and I'll finish, 20 years ago or 30 years ago, whatever form of critique I thought I was doing got domesticated and conventionalized by historians. And that process is a very interesting one. It's what you were talking about, Gary, I think, and, and Joe. The way in which something gets flattened out, even in the very way in which historians get their kudos. So even if something starts a critique, it ends up being a functionalism, that gender functions for empire, sexuality functions for race, that it gets caught in something, and then a whole set of things get attached to it. And I'm concerned about sort of how that happens and what, what history does to, that is, no one thinks of themselves as conventional, so it's not about conventional history. We all think we're maverick. But how that process happens behind our backs, even when we think we're coming up with something that actually is going to transform the world. What is the dynamic 
the structural dynamic in history that produces those conventions. Sorry for taking so long. Thank you. Well, I think you're saying two, you're, there are two different things that you're talking about. <coughs> and, and in the first thing, the failure to talk about what critique is, I think the whole of part three in the, in the thesis on uh, history and theory oh, defines what that. critical history is mm -hmm. um, and, and what critique as history as critique or critique in history is. So I think um, that that has more sections in it than any of the other mm -hmm. parts. And, it, and it, it seems to me to spell out very clearly the, psych the psychic, epistemological, ethical, and political dimension of what the practice of critique with history or history as critique would actually do. So I don't see that we've uh, that or, or, or avoided that in Joan, I didn't read, I, I, I didn't get to read that. I was listening to you, so well, I based it on, I sorry. Also went through. Okay. Yeah, if, I mean, I, if I can intervene, but you go back to the usual suspects on some level. It's deconstruction and Marxism and a host of other glorious, glorious theoretical interventions. And the question is whether, whether the, uh, theories, history is other, that we always have to cross some boundary. Well, and we're arguing that it's not. And that's what that's You what argue both ways. No, it's no. Seems to me that you argue both no, ways. No, that's what the whole section on theory and critical history is. It's, mm. it's an argument that against the opposition, the point is not for historians to become theorists, theories for theorists' sake is in bankrupt with the idea that facts can speak for themselves. The point is for disciplinary history to overcome its guild mentality, to interrogate its common sense assumptions about evidence and reality, subjectivity and agency, context and causality, chronology and temporality. This would require serious engagement with critical theories of self society and history. Right, but you agree with Anne that the most important thing is conceptual work. However you label it, no, it's, it's not about nomenclature, it's not about this person is a Marxist or Foucaultian or, no. or anything. I don't think we and, and some of the critical in intervention can come from the intrinsic practices of the historical profession. To historicize is sometimes to critique, right? You, the, the question is how to, I, mean, I, I think your intervention on one hand <coughs> asks for collapsing boundaries but maintain those boundaries at the same time. <coughs> Time and perhaps refine theory. I'm, I, I just wonder by making it into a list of well, if, if a couple things. One, this was meant to have exactly this conversation. So, you know, it, it was not a, a, a white paper on what is wrong with the historical profession or a long essay on this is what has to be done. It was, you know, a series of propositions that call for certain things and point to certain things. I think, you know. Uh, I think there is a danger there in the reification of theory, capital T. We had conversations uh, about that, but I think we worked very hard not to do that. So I, I would flip it around and say, huh, why do people keep reading it that way? It's not our fault. It's, you know, why do people, I mean, it is interesting because as Joan just quoted there, we say very clearly it is about conceptualizing the material. It is not about having the theory that you, I mean, we say that over and over yeah. again. It doesn't endorse any particular theory at all. I mean, we make some references, but those references are by definition infinite. And we say over and over that theory is a practice of, uh, as I said, triangulating your material, your, uh, your, your concepts or categories, 
and, and, and the world, the world you're studying and the world we live in now, rather than what we need is to read that group of books and master them and use them. I mean, so to the extent that you might have heard that, we will adjust that or change that, or that is certainly not, I mean, I don't even care about defending this document because it's more where we go, but I agree with you. I mean, I agree with both of you. It's just more nuanced than I agree well, with both of you. But this idea that we don't know what critique is, I would disagree up and down. Not the three of us. I mean, this no, idea no. that what we need to be asking is what could critique me now. Like, uh, pretty clear. Like, I don't, yeah. I don't think that's a problem. No, no I problem. Also don't think I, okay, go ahead. I also don't think that there is conceptual labor without theory. I mean, it, it doesn't make sense. I, really know that. I well, think that theory comes from conceptual labor. That's what you're saying. Well, I mean, what, what you're saying you're saying the opposite. No, Jones and I say well, you only get conceptual labor if you have a theory. And I'm going no, not if you have a theory. theory. Yeah, it's no. not a theory. If you what you're doing with ground. conceptual labor is working theoretically. But you're, you're working theoretically. Okay, let's continue, please. Uh, I think this question is related. <laughs> uh, but that's a different direction. Uh, what place, if any, do you think uh, pre 19th century? and specifically pre-19th century non-Western history can have for this conversation. Mm -hmm. Also as a model, I think now, I mean, what are the assumptions <coughs> of Greco-Roman history of, uh, uh, for assumptions about methodology, purpose, ethics, but also the relation between history and theory, for example, excuse me, in ancient Greece, Islamic historiography, early imperial Chinese historiography. I mean, what value does a model do they have for advancing this conversation for, 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 for models of the interaction of history and theory, their own theoretical, assumptions and underpinnings as, as historians and so on. So all of us are modern historians, and so the question gets turned around to you, right? What, what would you do with that material? Um, well, well, that and so so that would be, it seems to me, the, the, the question to take up in relation to this. I think if you want to write a piece on that for History of the Present, for one of these interventions that we post, I would love to have it. All right, yeah. Yeah. But these things are not, they don't mean the same. Even mm -hmm. the word itself, we know, is foreign French, changing. means different things than Geschichte, than, than history right. in English, and so on. Uh, so the implications, the boundaries, the, the, the genre, all of that. But, uh, but, but, and, and that's the very point of critical history. Right. There's not a right. thing called history I agree. and a thing called theory. So, in a certain way, the way out of this is not, I mean, as deep and rich and valuable as pre-modern and non-Western and uh, non, uh, and let's say poetic and aesthetic, you know, all kinds of ways of, you know, uh, grasping the world uh, and, 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 and finding truth, let's say, as deep and amazing as they are, we don't get out of this set of problems we're talking about by, oh, this is the, mo you know, like, they have a better version of this and we'll mm -hmm. use that here. It is that it is what we do with with our stuff, how how we make sense of the stuff we're doing. But also, like every time, you know, Hayden Wade has this this. I mean, my, my approach to this is much more Marxian and not <coughs> structuralist at all. So that's an interesting thing about the the the, the responses to this. But uh, he has this. I think that you know every you know every uh, empirical uh, every descriptive <coughs> act already prefigures a whole theory of society. So I think that's, you know, so on the one hand, it's conceptualizing your own material and abstracting away from it in order to kind of recognize 
the kind of non, non the, the non-given as really real, but in part it's also having enough understanding of different ways of 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 different traditions of social theory, which could be from anywhere, to know that when you make certain claims, along with it come a whole set of assumptions, as I said, about <coughs> agency and intention and event and context and scale and all of these things. And if those go unquestioned, where? I don't know. We just reproduce things. So, so yes. I have a quick question and then another one that I sort of have. <laughs> so the, the quick question is, um, why name the primary object of your critique uh, empiricism and, and whether that's actually potentially at odds with what you're doing in the piece? Because it, it seems like what you're saying is that what you are calling empirical history is history that, like the construction of any narrative, has a theory of how the social world it is describing works. It simply is not reflexive about it and therefore ends up reproducing some set of kind of embedded norms about how the world works. Um, and that in, in calling that empiricist history, you're implying that there's no theory in the narrative when in fact the, the theory is there. The issue is that it's, it's sort of not considered deliberately, whereas an Eric Foner has done that work and is choosing to write a narrative in which the, the deliberate work of working of thinking through the, the theory is embedded, but you can write. So, so the question is just what, whether that like that way of naming the problem is actually reproducing the the split that you're actually trying to overcome. And then the other question, I mean, I, I, so I have. Can a story. we answer that one? Yeah, 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 sure. Yeah. I mean, I would just say very simply that it, it comes from <coughs> engaging with the moment in the historical profession in which the so-called empirical term is now the explanation for the kind of work that, that uh, is being done. And so we're taking on that um, that claim. You know, we, we have, we've gone from the, the theoretical term of the linguistic <coughs> term to now the empirical, all these terms, right? And we're now in the empirical term. And so you're right in a way that taking so that taking that on means also a, a critique or an implicit critique of a certain 19th-century <coughs> view of history of empiricist history, which refuses any notion of um, embedded theory, which which is you know what is what's there. So yeah, I, I would just add to that. It, it's a, I mean that's why I was insisting on that difference between empiricist or empiricism and empirical work. A lot of people say, oh, empirical, how can you throw that out? Empiricism, or an empiri you know, it is a kind of theory of knowledge, a certain way of figuring the relationship between subject and object that suggests that the, uh, the observable is the real, and that is how you do research, and that's how, right? So, so it, what we're criticizing is not empirical work, but a theory of truth, or knowledge, or reality, that understands uh, the immediately apparent as the really real. And that anything other than that might be fun or interesting or speculative, but it's not, it can't be history. And that's what, that's the bit that seems not to have changed in a certain way. At the level of the field, or enough. So second question, very quickly. So the, the second question is, is um, sort of how you, how you chose 
the, the foci that become representative of the discipline and, uh, and whether the story would look different if the AHR uh, were not the focus. And uh, I mean, and, and so I say this as a historian of, of the Middle East, like these problems exist in our field as well. But I was thinking this morning about the fact that none of the major historians that have trained the people that have jobs in most of the major history departments in the country have ever published in the AHR. Most of us do not read AHR articles <laughs> in our conferences. <laughs> and the camera. Um, and, and, uh, yeah, good point. And this yeah. is, uh, I mean, so, like so, I mean, it, so, so one could think of this in, in simplistic terms as a kind of, I mean, there was a kind of split where a lot of that work went to CSSH instead. Um, but, but there's a larger question about the way that choosing to make the AHR represent, representative may obscure the ways in which what you're hoping to accomplish is already yeah. happening in some other places. And so then, like, whether the, the thesis form is presenting as a pedagogical problem what you're actually describing as a, as a political and structural problem that um, and so then what the relationship is between the thesis form and the structures of power that you're actually trying to address. Do you think it's already happening? I mean, do you think it means? <laughs> <laughs> I think we're not denying that it's happening. Um, and this goes back to the point that Gary made earlier. It's not, as, it's not that these things don't exist. It's that the reward structures, uh, the, mm -hmm. the bureaucratic processes, and so in that sense, the AHR uh, stands yeah. for uh, the, the sort of, of um, the place where uh, legitimacy is conferred or not, even if most yeah. people don't have a public thing. I mean, it is the place <coughs> that people aspire to. Um, so, so the the question is about the marginalization or the underappreciation of an area of practicing history um, that we want to see recognized as part of the discipline rather than as um, sort of marginal to it or um, not exactly of it. It's, that's the I think that's the, the aim. Um, in, in that when lots of people, <coughs> lots of people who don't publish in the HR are professionally fine. But <coughs> getting a job in a history department, if you don't subscribe to many of the protocols that are assumed, is still a, an uphill battle. You've got to be special in some, you know, it's a, it's a tough, tough route. Maybe two points. It's a more point on that. Is that the editor of the journal said that we are decolonizing the, the journal mm. by bringing more people of color and women into this. And you said not decolonizing enough because yeah. methodologically <coughs> all of them will produce the same kind. Mm. Of yeah. mm. We didn't say that. We said we didn't say methodologically they all reproduce the same kind. Of That's what we didn't. Like. No, well, that is not true. It's necessary but not sufficient. We said that the sociological diversity does not necessarily represent. Epistemological or, right. or um, I, I understand. Um, there was a hand way in the back. Right? Uh, the hand the just hand left the room. Uh, hand <laughs> <laughs> Please, Federico. I saw a good question or a short question. I mean, I actually realized that you should like the HR. Uh, talk louder because people are. Yeah, talk louder. Uh, Maybe you can stand up. 
Take the microphone. I like that. Yeah. But it is not, you know, we're talking about something uh, much broader, which I think you know, but, you know, 
certainly doesn't feel like if only we could get our guy in the HR, or a little bit in the HR, we would, you know, then we'd be okay. Uh, one one at all. thing, just to add to that, I, I was thinking as I reread this that um, in the in the 80s there was the feminist critique, the feminist historian's critique of the notion that you could just add women and stir. The great um, goal was to transform history. I wrote about that, but everybody was but if you look at what's happened in the field of, of women's history, it didn't happen um, for the most part. Um, it was adding women. Uh, it did not. It did not transform the historical history. So that's another example, in a way, of um, the 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 resistance that some of this stuff has come up against. Um, in ways that we did not think it would. I mean, it really was the, the dream of the 80s that history was going to never be the same. And it managed to, <laughs> to resist. Uh, well, we thought we were doing critical history then. Mm -hmm. But it got conventional. Yeah, well, this is the same. I mean, exactly. it's the same. It's another argument. It's another example of um, maintaining the review process while sociologically diversifying. Mm -hmm. The, the authors and the content. We have another 10 minutes. I want to collect a few questions just before okay. the end. So, yeah. uh, Enlo Shapira uh, raised, um, I wonder if any of the uh, graduate students or the students in general want to ask a question. So, I'll collect a few and perhaps you will. Okay. Yeah. So, Enlo and then, please. Not all of them. No, no. <laughs> of course not. <laughs> um, and, and also, Gary uh, saying something about this is can't be just the deals and there's all this work outside. But I think um, I'm thinking about still what is it that made it so difficult to keep the thing going in a way and thinking about the the power of stories, historical stories told in the media, told in film, and that it, it's almost <coughs> irresistible. And rarely is that form where there's the kind of reflexivity and critique that, that um, you, you are asking for. And I'm just thinking about that as part of the battle. Okay, yeah, we'll collect a few questions. Yes, please. Um, so my question is about the uh, maintenance of the review process with the broadened authorship. Mm -hmm. um, so there, <coughs> in respect to journalism, there are some open source uh, systems that are being devised. I'm thinking of Bellingcat, mm -hmm. the open source journalism organization, um, where they kind of have ways to verify information through various digital tools. So I was kind of wondering how uh, th this would function with what you're suggesting because if uh, if I and some of the other graduate students went and conspired and wrote a, a, a thesis, no one would read it um, because we're just beginning, but because uh, seasoned professionals wrote it, it has some credibility. So where would an, an amateur's credibility come from? Or well, I thought you were going to raise it, but oh, I'm sorry. No, go ahead. Um, not go ahead. So <laughs> wait for a second. Yes. So this process of formalization you're describing um, seems to be happening in several other disciplines as well. Yeah. 
and Luke. <laughs> yeah, yours first. Um, so we have this thing in this piece that we wrote on the on the critical inquiry blog, which says whether due to backlash against earlier theoretical challenges or their perceived gain, neoliberal attacks uh, neoliberal attacks on non-instrumental knowledge, academic downsizing, a depressed job market, mistaken perceptions of theory as intrinsically a need or a needed, any number of factors that need to be explored. The U.S. Academy seems to be suffering a period of intellectual conservatism that is nourished by epistemological realism and vice versa. So it's not just um, history, or it, it, it's, the, it's the broader um, moment in which we're living, in which a kind of conservative consolidation or a conservative retreat from critical work and critical thinking has been increasingly the, the norm. That, at least, it seems to me, is part of the answer to, to what you're talking about. You know, why now? Um, the, or why in these last 20-some years? <coughs> it, it, it's as if, in order to justify the continued respect for and support of something like the discipline of history, the stories that are told have to be accessible, comfortable, entertaining. Yeah. You want to yeah, I, I, you know, I thought you were going to ask about um, this, these hopsters, you know, the mm, Yeah, mm-hmm. I had Mark Kerlinski in mind. Because <laughs> they, I mean, what, what occurred mm. to me was they succeeded quite well without being important, um, advanced uh, professionals. I think if graduate students did it right, there actually could be a forum for it. Um, I think there are places like History of advertising my journal, but <laughs> history of the present has a section called intervention, where something coming from um, a, a sort of thoughtful re- re- um, set of theses for graduate students would, in fact, be uh, acceptable. If you wanted to intervene on the history of the present website against around this, you could do it. And there's a, there are places. I'm not saying across, I'm not saying the AHR <coughs> or the perspectives of those, you know, newsletters, but I think there are places where th- there's a, a, a response that would be um, possible or a place that would be, you'd have to find it. You'd have to find the space that's open to it. But I think there are, contrary to what, in some ways, the notion of everything being <coughs> there are little spaces in which some pushing could actually be done and could achieve Although, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, I think there are spaces, and but you raise a really important point that uh, there, you know, people differently situated have different opportunities. So without sounding too uh, falsely altruistic, part of the idea is to clear the kind of space. Maybe not so graduate students can write, you know. Species, although that's fine, but at the very least, that people doing creative, exciting work can be told, right on, do this really? thing, rather than, yeah, this is fun, but you'll never get a job. You know, like, we are aware, like, we're certainly not criticizing graduate students who make certain choices based on material constraints, but which is why we're talking to places like the HR and say, like, you know, we how do we open this up so that at this time, when these political <coughs> questions are so urgent, when people are interested in linking past to present in really uh, non-self-evident ways, <coughs> and constantly 
students, young scholars are being told, don't do this or else, or you may be, you know, and the risks are real. I mean, the, as many of you know, the risks are really uh, present about uh, doing heterodox work. So we would certainly like to create more and more spaces where more and more uh, is possible. But I think you're right, especially at the level, never mind the thesis, but it's the writing of the dissertation. I can't tell you yeah. how many committees I've been on in which work was was um, being, really interesting work was being proposed, and the response, I usually sat on the committee as an expert, the response from the, uh, the director of the thesis was, get rid of that uh, introduction, you're never going to get a job. Uh, so that, and, and that is the sort of thing I think they were, they were writing against. There again, there are exceptions. There are wonderful exceptions. But Emma? You, you want to ask a question? Well, there was a film question then. A film question, yes, please. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> it feels like it's beyond, I mean, I don't know what's happening in film studies. I, I guess that's my, my brief answer. So I don't know how to, I don't know what the discipline is, what the field is, so I don't know how to answer. rationality, right? It's the economic economics gives value to everything. And so what you're talking about are the ways in which certain kinds of art, because they appear whatever it is, acquire economic value that um, might not have been the case at the <coughs> time, although again I'm not exploring I agree, it's a much broader broader process. Um, I mean there's the phenomenon there's I mean obviously it is uh, borderline, you know, in these dark times, at this historical moment, it seems silly, absurd, uh, trivial to be having this conversation, the AHR, disciplines, all this stuff, but there is, you know, without, and, and I, I certainly, I don't think any of us think, like, this is the political <coughs> intervention that needs to be made now. This is one among many fronts in which we're all working, but there is a sense that, like, in these hard times, in these times of uh, precarity and reaction, there are always questions about how one responds to the squeeze. And obviously, the more kind of solid ground you want, you, you're on, you have uh, more opportunities for responding to the squeeze in ways that don't capitulate as quickly. But I think we're all faced with that <coughs> in our work, in our institutional lives, and in our, in our everyday lives. And I think this, this question of whether there's a kind of deeply conservative, protective, 
uh, self-protective reaction to the thing that has been destroying us all. Or we say, look, in a certain way, there's less to, you know, like that hasn't worked. It hasn't worked. It hasn't worked. So there is this way in which uh, from uh, responsible thesis advisors to anxious graduate students to uh, journals uh, facing funding, you know, questions in the public sphere, there is this tendency to say, like, now more than ever, we've got to be careful. Now more than ever, we've got to play by the rules. And playing by the rules is what's, you know, is part of the downward spiral. So this is at least, you know, I think there is a link between at least this kind of intervention and the bigger challenges we're, we're up against. So we can uh, go on forever, yeah. uh, <laughs> but we won't. So I want to thank you for coming thank and you. for this. And <laughs> <laughs> also asked by our communications are to urge you to follow us on Twitter. There is something called Twitter, right? Twitter <laughs> and Facebook. Um, thank you. Just don't post. Um, vulgar, obnoxious no, 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 no. on anybody <laughs> on Twitter because the right wing will be on your back. <laughs> What's the Twitter? <laughs>